Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So we're back for another summer special episode, reviving a few stories that we've liked from the past season. There, there's a lot of talk this summer about energy sources with the EU preparing for Russia to potentially cut off gas supplies. We're being asked to cut energy consumption across the continent. And there are also searches for alternatives. Yeah, this may be the push that renewable energies really need to take off. Yeah, yeah. But of course, one of the main blocking points with renewables is storage. Mm. I mean, if the sun doesn't shine on a solar panel or wind doesn't blow a turbine, there is no electricity being generated. And making giant batteries is complicated. You know, there's metals coming from faraway places. One way to store energy is hydrogen. You can make it with electricity and water. And it's a gas so that you can store it in a tank to use it later. And its outputs are green, water and oxygen, what went into it. Right. And last November, French President Emmanuel Macron announced billions of euros in investment in this green hydrogen. Yeah, to have France become the leader in the technology by 2030. Of course, now we're rethinking all of our energy mix with this Russia situation. But the idea of green hydrogen is the energy used to create it comes from renewable sources. So this is a fairly recent thing. And in December, I went to see what was being touted as the world's very first green hydrogen production plant on the coast of Brittany. And on the way, I stopped in Nantes, a city that's been experimenting with hydrogen for transportation. One of the first things I did in Nantes was to get into a small utility vehicle at a tram depot run by the Semitant, the city's public transport agency. System ready? I hope so. That's Raphael Lecoq, an engineer with the Semitant, which has been experimenting with hydrogen vehicles for the past few years. We're in one of the agency's two Renault Kangoo vans, part of its fleet of maintenance vehicles. It's a pretty standard van, except that written on the white exterior is zero emissions and I run on hydrogen. It's an electric vehicle, so it runs very silently, but it has an added hydrogen tank that extends the battery's range from 100 to 300 kilometers. The exhaust that comes out of a tube of the side of the van is just water vapor. What is good with hydrogen is that with electricity and water, you can produce uh, hydrogen. Many people think it's uh, the energy of the future because uh, hydrogen is a good way to store uh, energy. Stéphane Bis is a technical and project director at Semitan. I wouldn't say it is the energy of, of the future. I think the future will include hydrogen. That is sure, especially for heavy load vehicles. For long transit, because the problem with long distance vehicles is that uh, if you use battery, you need a very big weight of battery. That is why hydrogen uh, is probably a very interesting uh, alternative. Nantes has experimented with a hydrogen-powered ferry that takes commuters across the Elde River in the north of the city. The Semiton bought these utility vehicles in 2016 to explore the technology. Up. Voilà and also to test a hydrogen filling station they put in place at a bus depot. The filling station is basically a group of tall, narrow hydrogen tanks that feed into a machine that looks a lot like the pumps at a regular gas station. There's a tube with a nozzle, but this one snaps into the car. Lecoq pushes some buttons on the machine, and it starts running. Hydrogen's a gas, so it's measured out not in liters, like for gas or diesel, but in bars of pressure. Mm -hmm. 
Filling the tank is like filling a balloon. A full tank is 350 bars of pressure, which is pretty high. Just for comparison, a bicycle tire is inflated to about four bars. Hydrogen is a very light gas. The van's tank holds about two kilos. A fully hydrogen car holds about six or seven. So this is a lightweight energy made from water that produces no emissions when it burns. But electricity is required to separate hydrogen from oxygen and water, and also to compress it. And the hydrogen at this station was made with electricity from the grid. So here in France, that means from nuclear energy, which at peak times is also supplemented with fossil fuel. But green hydrogen does exist. Here on the coast, an hour west of Nantes, 10 wind turbines in a row are turning at full speed in the high wind. The first three are connected directly to a facility a kilometer and a half away. The system is synchronized with the wind turbines, so if there's no wind, there's no hydrogen. Antoine Amon is the director of operations of LIFE, the startup that runs this production facility, which started producing green hydrogen in September. The plant is a warehouse. It's divided into two sections. The one we're allowed into has two containers that are filtering seawater pumped in from the Atlantic Ocean next door. That's then pumped into the tank in the other half of the building, the electrolyzer, which runs electricity through the water to separate the hydrogen and the oxygen molecules. The two sections are separated by a thick concrete wall because large quantities of hydrogen are flammable. But we can look through the windows at a maze of colorful pipes. So here you have the electrolyzer and all the water is in the purple pipes. And outside of the electrolyzer you have two colors. The white color is oxygen and the yellow pipe is hydrogen. The hydrogen is purified and pressurized into containers which can then be transported to whomever needs the hydrogen. Hydrogen is a way to store electricity. It's a storage, it's a gas. This is why our societies, they run on diesel, they run on gas, because it's convenient. You can store that in a pipe, on a truck, in a boat. Mathieu Guenet is the CEO of LIFE, which he started in 2017. Back in 2017, when we started the company, I can tell you we were not even pioneers, we were a visionary. Nobody was aware of the need for green hydrogen back in 2017. But now everyone's aware. Europe is pushing hydrogen. It's a local energy source which allows energy to be stored. For example, wind turbines that run in the middle of the night, that electricity isn't necessarily going to be used on the grid. So what do you do with it? If it's turned into hydrogen, it can be transported and used elsewhere later. It's more efficient than batteries for many usages. The electrical car, they have limited range. So when you need to heavy-duty vehicles, when you need to run for long range, hydrogen was the missing piece of the puzzle. Uh, today, we have biogas, we have smart grids, we have batteries, we have renewables. Uh, we know what we need to do. But there, there was kind of a problem for trucks, for buses, and this is the last piece of the puzzle. Now, since I reported that story, Life, the company, has gone public. It launched an IPO in May, and it seems to be doing well. They launched offshore production facilities using huge sea turbines and seawater. So is this the future? Still too soon to tell, but hydrogen will certainly play a role, and France, in any case, is banking on it. So I'm realizing, Sarah, that you do a fair amount of stories about energy like that one, the environment Mm. and ways forward, how France is moving. 
And I seem to be, I seem to be drawn to tales of the universal nature of human suffering, um, <laughs> at least some of the time. The listeners do get their highs and lows that way, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I do do some upbeat stories. Yeah. One in October last year was grim in principle, but it did also open up a window. Uh, last year, French MPs passed a bill banning conversion therapy for gay and transgendered people. I met a young French gay man, Benoit Berthet, who had been put through conversion therapy himself as a teenager. His devout Catholic parents thought that his homosexuality could be cured. And he went on to co-found a collective, Rien à guérir, Nothing to Heal, which had lobbied very successfully to get MPs to take this issue seriously. When I talked to Berthet, the Senate still had to vote on the issue. They eventually passed the ban. But he talked about the satisfaction he had in getting attitudes in France to change. And so he shared his very personal story about how his parents had forced him into psycho-spiritual sessions because they were convinced he'd be so much happier if he was heterosexual. It was a real eye-opener for me because outside of the LGBTQ community, this issue of conversion therapy really hadn't been talked about that much. I grew up in a Catholic family, very uh, religious, but not a fundamentalist people of uh, Catholic religion. And by the age of 10, 11, I started to feel same-sex attraction. And uh, I knew my family wouldn't allow me to feel that. For them, the perception of uh, homosexuality was perversion. So I decided to hide it. But at the age of 15, I couldn't hide it anymore. I did my coming, coming out, but in a very wild way. I just said to my mother that, uh, yeah, I had those attractions. She reacted in a very weird way, actually. She asked me two questions, very representative of what they were thinking. My mother asked me if I was touched by a priest. First question. And then she asked me if I had same-sex sexual activities which at 15 I answered by no. But those questions just show how much my parents felt that homosexuality was a, a kind of a disease you catch, like something bad from the exterior. It's not part of your identity. So she tried to be reassurant and she told me, well, don't worry, this is teenagehood. Uh, you will change. Uh, you're discovering your body and we will help you, obviously. It meant we will help you to get away from it because they thought that if I would embrace the homosexual lifestyle, as they would call it at that time, I would be deeply unhappy. A few weeks later, they enrolled their son on a camp run by the charismatic Catholic community known as the Beatitude. The retreats that they organize are called Guérison de Blessures Profondes, the healing of deep wounds. I was forced to go to sessions psycho-spiritual sessions, retreats. I was going there some weekends or weeks during holidays. They were run by uh, religious people, people involved in the community, sometimes doctors and people who were experts on those subjects. That's the way they were representing themselves. I was 15, I trusted my parents, those people felt important, so I just went there. And so what happened? The place is a very far away place, like in the monasteries or castles, like old places uh, far away from towns. Um, you feel disconnected to your life and uh, you're living kind of the life of a monk or a sister, I would say. Uh, you 
don't eat much. You uh, sleep in cells like the monk and sister cells, and you are not allowed to speak to other people there. And obviously, you have praying moments. You have uh, Bible studies and uh, teaching. But the thing that was extremely rough was uh, meeting with uh, spiritual guides or fathers. And in those guiding spiritual sessions, you're one-to-one -one with a person. There are theories that you are deeply heterosexual and homosexuality is just a layer of, of something dirty that you have to clean. And more and more the session happens and the question happens. They are subtly putting some seeds of homophobia in you by showing you homosexuality as something extremely dirty, as uh, something degrading. They were saying, like, you don't want to end up like that. This is against nature. They basically teach you to become homophobes against yourself. Is that how you ended up feeling? Absolutely. I mean, I was uh, frozen, totally scared, unable to meet people in real life because my idea of homosexuality was so broken and dirty that I, I was feeling that I would be raped or, I don't know, by people like that. So much I was... Uh, influenced by all the homophobia I was uh, exposed. But basically, I I started to listen my heart a little bit more. I, I remember I was 18 and I was like thinking I need to meet people that are living homosexuality, people that are concerned by the subject. And that's really helped me to understand that what I've been told was massive bullshit. And that's how I ended up as well meeting my uh, first uh, love, who lasted uh, six years. So when I embraced this relationship, I totally understood that um, homosexuality is not uh, against nature. Everything felt natural to me and simple. And I felt becoming myself for the first time. I felt happy. And so it was like a sheet being torn in front of my eyes, like revelation. What do your parents think now of what they made you go through? I think they are horrified and they are very ashamed. My parents understood that what they did was wrong and they apologized to me and publicly at the television. So how old were you when that happened? I think they changed when I was uh, 23 or something like that. So it takes time and it took time as well because I had to rebuild myself, first of all. And I think as well the pedophilia abuses in the church really made them think. They saw the church being broken and they started to question something, an institution that they never questioned before. I think they kind of had a wake-up moment. So having gone public with his parents' backing, it's been a lot easier for Benoit Bert to speak out and openly campaign to end conversion therapy. His collective has been gathering data on cases and has managed to get an amendment into the bill so that they, along with other associations, would be able to prosecute as civil parties in the courts when victims feel that they don't want to go it alone. For the time being, though, it's very difficult to get conversion therapy cases to court, even when the alleged perpetrators, like uh, a recent case of a psychotherapist who was proposing highly dangerous intrauterine therapy, had been filmed using hidden cameras. We tried to alert authorities, but we didn't succeed to prosecute the person. And in fact, that person prosecuted us for defamation. So it shows how broken can sometimes be the law and how much we need that law 
to define precisely all the practices and to give the tools to victims to understand that what happened to them is abuse, sometimes torture, and they can sue. When you've been a victim of conversion therapy, it takes years to understand that you've been through something not normal. We know that conversion therapy is going on in many countries around the world. Is there anything that you would say is kind of French-specific? Obviously, every country has its specificities. In the U.S., they do not hide. In France, because we are in a local country and the yeah. French motto is uh, equality, fraternity and freedom. So obviously, it's not well seen to try to cure homosexuality. So people who would suggest and practice those abuses, they would do that discreetly. So uh, perhaps there is more secrecy in France than, for example, in the US. Absolutely, that's for sure. The specificity of France is also how efficient the campaign was. I mean, the law is not voted, so I, I won't claim victory too soon. But uh, we succeed to really bring political attention. And what really moved me this week when I was in the parliament is that we succeed something that never happened in France history before. All the political party, all of them from right to left to center to extreme left and even extreme right voted unanimously against conversion therapy. This is the first LGBT related law in France that brings unanimity in France. So we really felt success by doing that and history happened. That historic cross-party success was down to a lot of hard work by politicians and the collective, lots of lobbying of medical and religious institutions. But perhaps crucially, they managed to get agreement ahead of time that the issue of freedom of faith wouldn't be part of the parliamentary debate so that no one could use it as an argument to deflect from what is basically abuse. No face can legitimate such abuse. And we succeed to make those institutions say that before the debate. So there were no debate on freedom of, of speech and freedom of, of faith or uh, individual uh, freedom because this is abuse. And we knew we had to do this job before because we, we could see the debate in other countries. In fact, mainly in the U.S., we are linked with Born Perfect, the U.S. American organization that is campaigning against conversion therapy and they gave us very precious advice that we followed. So Sarah, since that interview, the Senate did approve the bill and in January this year, conversion therapy became a very specific crime in France, punishable by up to three years in prison and fines of up to 45,000 euros. Oh wow, so pretty intense uh, punishment. Yeah, Benoit Berti said he was really happy because it was the first time in French history that an LGBTQI right had been upheld unanimously in both uh, chambers. Mm. He was a bit disappointed though that the punishment was what you could get for slapping someone quite hard on the face. So he didn't think the punishment's hard enough? No. That said, the law isn't just about punishment because it also criminalizes all publicity, books and articles or anything that could encourage conversion therapies. So hopefully it will be more effective in terms of prevention. It will also make it easier for victims and the collective that Berthe runs to mount legal cases. To date, uh, however, no one in France has been prosecuted for conversion therapy.
And that's it for this show. Uh, the next time you'll be hearing from us will be in September when we'll have some brand new stories. In the meantime, you can find previous episodes on RFIEnglish.com, follow us on Instagram, or find the podcast Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts. Bye, Alison. Enjoy the rest of the summer. You too, Sarah. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.